Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books in Sociology. I'm your host, Annie Sapukaya. New Books in Sociology is one of the many channels in the New Books Network, a volunteer-driven project where we interview authors about their new books in different fields. This gives listeners the opportunity to learn about new books and new ideas from the authors themselves, and will hopefully make everyone dash to the bookstore. Today I am going to talk to Michael Salter on his new book, Organized Sexual Abuse, published by Rutledge in 2014. Salter is a lecturer in criminology at the University of Western Sydney in Australia. His research focuses on the connection between gendered violence, health and culture, and the significance of violence in the formation of culture and identity. In this book, he talks about his research on multi-perpetrator and multi-victim abuse, and the trouble victims have getting their stories heard and believed. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Annie. So we're talking to you today about your book, Organized Sexual Abuse. Uh, To begin, could you tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to write this book? I'm a lecturer in criminology at the University of Western Sydney. Uh, My background's in public health, and uh, I became concerned about uh, the lack of um, evidence and the lack of research uh, specifically on the issue of multi-perpetrator child sexual abuse. Uh, I grew up with um, somebody who'd survived organized abuse, and this is something that I write about uh, in the book uh, because um, in her early 20s, when we were both in our early 20s, when she was trying to access services um, to address her mental health needs, and she also had quite serious concerns about her physical safety, uh, we were unable to find uh, any real support for her. So that really prompted me to um, shift gears a little bit um, and to take, um, I suppose, my, my background in, in public health and start to look at the disjunction um, between the needs of survivors of organised abuse and what was available for them in terms of health and welfare services and also the police. What do you kind of define as organized abuse as opposed to, I guess, disorganized abuse or, you know, abuse that isn't a multi-perpetrator? It's interesting you bring it up. There is uh, sort of a crossover between organized and disorganized abuse. Um, There's a significant minority of sexual abuse survivors who have experienced sexual abuse by more than one person because um, they're in a vulnerable situation and they experience opportunistic abuse by different people who don't know one another. My concern was particularly in relation to uh, people who'd experienced sexual abuse by multiple offenders who did know one another and who were acting in concert um, because this adds an additional dimension of secrecy and conspiracy to the abuse. My working definition of organised abuse for the book was quite simple, that there were more than two adults acting in concert to abuse more than one child. 
Uh, and I ended up in the book not restricting this to childhood, but to include uh, adults as victims of organised abuse because I spoke to a number of women in particular whose experience of organised abuse began in childhood, but it didn't end in childhood. They continued to be abused into adulthood by the same offenders um, as they had been um, when they were kids. Wow. And so what what kind of uh, research did you do? I, you, you interviewed a number of people, correct? There's a lot of sort of excerpts and quotes in your book about people that you spoke to. It was a combination of... Uh, qualitative research, so I, I did life history interviews with adults that had experiences of organised abuse beginning in childhood, uh, and these interviews would last uh, anywhere between sort of two to eight hours. Uh, often this was the first time that people had had the opportunity to really tell the story of their life and, and talk about how they'd come to be the people they were today, and often that that person, that trajectory was, was shaped by um, these um, early onset traumas beginning in childhood. I really aimed to situate that qualitative research within the existing epidemiological and, and quantitative data that we already have about sexual abuse because we've, we've got very good uh, long-term um, cohort studies and, and also prevalence studies uh, of sexual abuse, and they clearly show that a proportion of people reporting abuse in childhood are reporting multiple offenders, um, and they're also reporting um, other experiences commensurate with organised abuse, such as the manufacture of child abuse images, um, the collusion of um, male and female perpetrators in, in abuse. Um, so these were all indicators that I could use to start to construct an empirical um, framework or an empirical context within which I could situate the, the qualitative research in order to really bring out some of the linkages between um, what my research participants were saying and what we already know from the available data. You, you talk a lot about um, victims of organized abuse not being believed, and um, I found that interesting because you do hear a lot about abuse, but the kind of abuse that, that you describe is so outrageous mm. that it, it it almost sounds made up. Um, but, mm. you know, it, it, is that something, is that a common kind of problem that it, it's so larger than life that it seems like this can't possibly be happening? I think there's a few issues there. I think, um, firstly, although as a society and, and a community and different communities can be very vocal in their concern about sexual abuse, um, the fact is, is that being disbelieved is the most common experience for any sexual abuse survivor. Um, it's very, very really? rare that, that a victim has an experience um, of being validated and, and believed because if, if they lived in that community, if they were in that context where disclosures of abuse and symptoms of abuse were, were being detected and, and understood for what they were, they would be much less vulnerable to abuse in the first place. The abuse may not ever have, have taken place. So there is this disjunction, but behind the tremendous amount of talk that we have about sexual abuse, there really is a mass of, of victims and survivors who are disbelieved and who are silenced and, and invalidated. This is a particular issue for organised abuse survivors um, because 
the abuse that they experience tends to be more severe. So that's true of any multi-perpetrator sexual or physical offence. The more offenders are involved, the more severe the, the abuse and the violence tends to be. Um, we also see in organised abuse cases that offenders are quite premeditated in undermining the child's disclosures. So using drugs, um, using um, costumes, uniforms, um, often sometimes quite bizarre behaviour, so that if a five or a six-year-old was to disclose what was happening to them, the words that they would use would be um, easily misunderstood. Um, and, you know, we, we had a, an organised abuse case um, come to light here in Australia quite recently in which uh, two, two men had, um, had, in effect, purchased a child from, from Russia and then raised the child in the context of, of a pedophile ring. Uh, and these men actually um, engaged in fake forensic interviews with the child. So they, they would pretend to be investigators and they would actually interview the child and coach the child on what the child should say so that if the child ever was interviewed by police, they would be quite practised in their responses. So this is the level of premeditation that we see in organised abuse, um, and it makes the community really uncomfortable to realise that there are a group of offenders that are very creative um, in their efforts to evade detection. Uh, yeah, it, it seems like they they have it all kind of figured out before. Like there's so much manipulation that it's almost impossible for for them to even be believed for victims to. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah. I think very difficult for survivors to tell fact from fiction, and that was something that comes up really consistently for anyone working in the organised abuse space is that you're often speaking to adults um, or indeed speaking to, to children who have been told particular things about the nature of their abuse. Um, so, for example, there was a, a case a few years ago in, in Wales um, where um, a, a group of people had come together and had engaged in, in ritualistic sexual abuse of, of children and, and they were convicted and, and went to prison for this. But they told the children that they ran the world, they told the children that they had special, um, you know, magical assassins that would um, hunt the children down if they ever left. And, you know, it's a really interesting case because when you're working, you know, that, that's quite a well-substantiated criminal investigation with evidence and prosecution. But very often when you're speaking to adult survivors of organised abuse, they, you know, they may still believe this. They may still believe that their um, abusers are part of the government, that their abusers um have special assassins that are going to hunt them down. So, um, and it's it's quite a fine line between um, trying to understand how they came to that worldview without necessarily believing it to be fact, but also without then invalidating them and, and undermining um, their understanding of what they've been through. It's a really difficult line to walk um, mm -hmm. because survivors are so used to being disbelieved. Uh, and very sensitive to, to feeling as though they're being laughed at. And, and how does shame play into all of this? Because um, according to a lot of, uh, of the examples that you give, uh, perpetrators will often twist things so that it'll, they'll, they'll make it seem like it's the child's fault. Um, or even with adults, right? They'll try, they'll make them believe that, well, 
they somehow caused it in some way. And you hear that in terms of a lot of different kinds of abuse, but it seems to be very prevalent here. Particularly for these really um, serious and sadistic forms of abuses, I think, you know, when when I was doing the, the interviews with survivors, I, I really came to the sense that, that I, I think perpetrators believe it. I think that perpetrators, the perpetrators of the kind of abuse they were describing in which the child was being forced to, to do extremely humiliating and degrading things. I think it's part of the worldview that perpetrators are trying to construct in order to exculpate their own responsibility for the abuse, that, that they, they create a situation in which the child is seen as really degraded and, and filthy and disgusting and therefore deserving of the things that the perpetrator group wants to do to the child. So the, the victim becomes locked into this sort of universe in which they feel very, very deeply de- dehumanised and uh, that's something that, that is ingrained in them from, from a very early age. Um, and it's a lot of work for, for adult survivors to try and overcome this. Um, and it's incredibly destructive. I mean, obviously, it's an incredibly destructive thing, thing to do. Uh, and, uh, it, yeah, it is a real task, I think, for survivors of organised abuse to try and create a sense of, of themselves and a sense of their world uh, in which they're able to get away from those those deeply embodied feelings of shame and humiliation, which not only lock them into the cycle of abuse, but once they leave the abuse, um, really prevent them from disclosing because they don't want to talk about the things they've been forced to do. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your experience that you write about in the book about caring for your friend, Sarah, um, and how that came about and, um, and, you know, and, and what happened to her through the course of, of your time together? Sure. Sarah and I met when we were both in our late teens um, and uh, became friends over a, a period of time. Um, and it was quite well recognised um, at the time in her friendship circle that, um, you know, she was troubled, that, that she had difficulties um, eating, she had difficulties sleeping um, and uh, often had um, nightmares at, at night. Um, I, I became aware that she was actually leaving um, uh, at night and was often not not home at night um, and was going on these quite long, long walks. Uh, and at a certain point, I insisted on coming along with her on one of these walks and, and said to her that I that I felt that she had had some sort of traumatic experience in, in, in her background that she may have been abused. And so we, we sort of started developing a, a rapport uh, over time and it was something that she was very cautious about. I think she had uh, a lot of reasons to, to, to try and keep things secret. Um, but it became pretty clear to me uh, that she was still being abused, that something was still happening in, in her life. Uh, and that was something that, that she slowly let, let me know. Um, and we made a decision together um, to work together to try and bring that abuse to an end. Um, I really had no background in, uh, in abuse. I had no background in trauma, no background in mental health. Um, but I, I certainly came to feel that she was a suicide risk and that, um, you know, somebody needed to do, to do something. Um, so we spent uh, about a year where we, we lived together and sort of tried to plan out, you know, how we were going to um, improve her mental health, how we were going to improve her, her physical well-being, how we were going to protect her 
from what was happening because she was receiving phone calls, emails, um, text messages on her, her cell phone from these unidentified people who were instructing her to go to a certain place at a certain time and, and they would sort of pick, pick her up. Um, so it was a really, it was a really difficult, really horrifying year. I, I, I hadn't sort of seen any, any evidence of, of the abuse until then. I, she, she talked about it a, a little bit, but it was only once we, we lived together that I sort of um, saw really incontrovertible physical evidence that she was continuing to experience physical and, and sexual assault. And I write a little bit about this in the book. Um, the offenders not only were calling the house and I would sort of pick up, pick up the phone and they would be on the end of the phone, um, but they also sort of broke into the house. And I, I write about a, a, an incident where they actually painted our house in blood. So we, we came home and um, they'd, they'd actually painted blood on, on the walls and, and left um, sort of animal organs in our bed and all sorts of things. Um, yeah, it was it was crazy. Um, we were in contact with the police and, and in contact with hospitals at the time um, and and flat out they, they didn't believe us. And it became quite a serious situation because particularly the, the hospitals, it, it became necessary to take Sarah to the emergency department a couple of times when she had quite serious physical injuries um, and the hospital uh, developed the view that we were colluding in this. This was some kind of make-believe scenario um, and that we were sort of doing this for, for attention. Um, and so we actually had to stop using um, the, the, the hospital uh, and, and stop contacting police as well um, and do what, what we could between ourselves in order to protect protect Sarah. So, uh, so what sort of happened over the course of the year was, despite this pretty horrific sort of set of, uh, of situations, you know, Sarah was very very determined to leave the abusive group. She was very determined to find a different a different life for herself, uh, and she she was able to enrol in um, mental health treatment for trauma survivors. Um, she really stuck with it. Um, it helped her being able to, to eat. She was really underweight, so she was able to eat. She was able to sleep, uh, and once she was able, once she had that kind of physical well being. Um, that, of course, was very protective for her mental health as well. Um, and she started making plans, plans for a, a better life, a different life than the one that she had. Um, incredibly sort of courageous, very resourceful, very intelligent. Um, and once she had those plans in place, um, she she moved cities. So, so she moved away to, to a different place um, with the hope of, of making a new life for herself and that's something that she's done very, very successfully, actually. Um, it hasn't always been easy. Um, of course, she still has the mental health ramifications of, of what was done to her, and she's going to have to live with that for the rest of her life and manage that for the rest of her life. Um, but I'm really happy to say that she's really happy, and she's got you know a family now, and she's got uh, a, a job that she loves, and... Um, and she's really happy. So that's it's a really it's a really good news story, and it's one that I wanted to write because I wanted people to know what we've been through um, and what the two of us had achieved working together. But also, it's it's really important that survivors understand that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. That if you put if you put the work in and if you persevere, 
you know, you can find a life worth living. And that's a realistic goal for everyone that's been through what Sarah's been through. So did you ever find out, like, who these people were? Were they people that she knew, like, in childhood who had started abusing her as a child and then continued to harass her and stalk her? Yeah, that's right. So there there was certainly a a childhood uh, connection. Uh, And um, I I suppose what we were, certainly what I was very shocked by um, was that, you know, it was the persistence of, of the abuse. These men were clearly very, very concerned that child victims would grow to adulthood and would be reporting the abuse to the authorities. And that was explicitly, and that they said that, that is why they continued the campaign of abuse. Um, they would actively encourage Sarah to kill herself. Um, they really just wanted her um, out of the way because they were concerned that um, they were concerned that she would report the abuse to someone that would um, believe her. Uh, And she certainly knew of other victims who aren't here anymore because they had um, chosen to to, to kill themselves. Um, So she was, yeah, really, really holding on to her life and her sanity. Um, And there was a tremendous amount of pressure being brought to bear to make her life so intolerable that that she would, would, would kill herself. Wow, that's really horrifying. <laughs> um, could you tell us a little bit about the false memory movement, which is the something that I mean I remember hearing a lot about as as a child. That um, there were all these TV shows and stuff where kids would I think it was Law and Order where you know kids would say they were abused and then they would say oh no actually it was a false memory and and this kind of thing. But you say this is actually a movement. Um, and that it really harms victims who have actually been abused. In the 1980s, uh, we saw a number of of social and and political movements develop around people who'd been accused of sexual abuse. Um, The status of sexual abuse testimony in the criminal justice system um, has been very controversial uh, and remains so today. because historically in the criminal justice system, the status of women and children's testimony has been very uncertain. We have long-standing beliefs in our culture, in, in Western culture, um, that children can't tell fact from, from fiction. Uh, and we have long-standing beliefs in Western culture that women make up uh, lies about sexual abuse and rape for attention. Uh, and women make up lies about sexual abuse and rape because women are childlike and and are unable to differentiate between fact and fiction. Um, we've explicitly articulated that um, in in legal you know documents and, and legal texts well into the 20th century. So in the 80s, when both children and women began to disclose sexual abuse, and this began to be taken seriously for the first time. Um, you know, political movements and social movements were able to capitalise uh, on this very pejorative negative view of women and children's testimony in order to garner a lot of support, uh, and particularly a lot of support amongst journalists and, and media, and the news media has long been very sceptical uh, of allegations of sexual violence, and they were also able to, to garner a lot of support from academics um, who were also, um, you know, socialised into this, this sceptical view. And that really came together in the early 90s, um, in, in the United States, 
when a, a group of people accused of sexual abuse and their supporters were able to join together um, with a group of academics into a very powerful coalition uh, of, um, of people who were arguing that much or most sexual abuse allegations were invented. And they drew particularly on um, a particular school of, of experimental psychological research um, that shows that um, uh, adults and, and children who go through in a, a psychological laboratory, who go through a series of experiments or tests, may um, remember poorly a list of words, for example, um, or in a, in a psychological experiment, may become confused about particular details of, of, of their past and their history. So this was then generalised to um, to sexual abuse allegations, particularly to characterise psychotherapy as a coercive environment. So the suggestion of the false memory syndrome was that a psychological experiment where someone is placed under pressure to think about or recall an event from their childhood that didn't take place, that this was commensurate um, or, or consonant with therapy, with the um, inference that therapy is a place where people are placed under pressure to remember things that didn't happen to them. So simply put, this was uh, a false analogy. It was an overgeneralization of psychological research findings. Uh, and what we ha uh, had happened, particularly in the United States, was a group of both psychologists and sociologists who began to make a lot of money as expert defense witnesses in the criminal justice system, charging three or four hundred dollars an hour for their testimony in defense of adults accused of, of sexual abuse and, and not infrequently adults accused of, of organized abuse, sadistic abuse, abuse that the community was already very skeptical of. So this really came together in, in, in the mid-90s uh, as, as a tremendous um, social and, and political force that was pushing back at a lot of the gains that had been made in relation to the sexual abuse survivor movement. I think it was um, very successful, uh, and in part because um, therapeutic treatment of sexual abuse survivors was in its infancy. Um, people... In uh, mental health professionals, in their in their efforts to treat sexual abuse survivors, they weren't always doing a good job. They were making mistakes. Uh, it's possible um, that they were um, that that there was a, a fringe group, I think, um, of mental health um, practitioners um, who for whom sexual abuse um, was um, the 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 origin of many or, or most mental illness, and it was just very unclear during this period. Um, most mental health practitioners were were doing their best to develop evidence based practice, um, but without a firm evidence base, that was very easy to undermine and mischaracterise in in the media. Uh, and many journalists, I think many academics, um, were were happy to do this. Uh, and my view is that there was a very strong gendered undertone to this, um, that um, these mischaracterizations of sexual abuse testimony as evidence of false memories, this mischaracterization of mental health practice as so-called recovered memory therapy was uh, an underhanded way uh, in which people who were very uh, hostile, I think particularly to the women's movement, into the gains made by feminism, it was an underhanded way for them to mischaracterise the, uh, the feminist movement 
and mischaracterised the support structures that the women's movement had put in place um, in order to protect not just survivors of sexual abuse, but to protect victims of, of domestic violence and, and sexual assault. Now, over the last 15 years, what we've seen is a, a consolidation of the evidence base for mental health practice. Um, we've seen real consensus emerging around appropriate ways to treat sexual abuse survivors and also what is the role of um, sexual abuse memories in treatment and in therapy. Um, and a real uh, push towards focusing on survivors' current capacities, focusing on building their skills in the present day. And that may involve talking about where they've been and what's happened to them, but less of a focus on on sort of dredging up and, and trying to recall the details of, of early childhood. I think that that's a really um, healthy development. Um, but we still have <clears throat> some questions around the access of sexual abuse survivors to the justice system. Um, and how can we make sure that when sexual abuse survivors are reporting this abuse, that they have access to justice? Everyone that's been a victim of crime has the right to go to the criminal justice system. They should be treated well. They should be treated respectfully and they should expect a just outcome. Uh, and that's an open question at the moment for people who choose to go to the police uh, to report something that's really terrible that's happened to them when they were five or they were ten. Um, I think we, we still have some way to go to make sure that, that sexual abuse survivors uh, are having a good experience in the justice system and they're not being harmed by it. It must be quite terrifying because if they go to the police, then they need to tell the police, and if they prosecute, they need to tell their story again and again and again in court, right? And, and oftentimes they'll be in the same room as, as the person they're accusing. It's very, it's very challenging and it's, it's, it's difficult to strike a balance on both sides. You know, due process is really important and there are just some practical obstacles for people who are recalling abuse that occurred 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. There's practical obstacles to proving that that took place uh, and we're never going to escape um, from that conundrum. And sometimes it may mean that um, mental health practitioners and, and other support services need to be providing sexual abuse survivors with ways of accepting a really difficult fact, which is that they may not get their day in court. And they may, they may really want that and they may have every right to it, but there's only so much that we can, we can prove or establish, um, you know, to, to a reasonable, uh, you know, um, beyond a reasonable doubt um, when a lot of time um, has elapsed. But nonetheless, those who, who choose to go to court and they've got a good case, they should be listened to. Uh, and the, the false memory argument, um, the notion of a false memory syndrome has faded over time because it was never a scientific diagnosis. It never received mainstream acceptance in um, psychological science. And, and so we're in a good position now where some of those countervailing politicised forces that had really um, unjustly uh, and without basis, had sort of infiltrated the criminal justice system. Um, they have lost their veracity and their, their credibility, um, but we do need to um, continue to reflect on how the justice system can adapt to the needs of vulnerable and easily intimidated witnesses. 
speaking about um, diagnosis, you talk a little bit about some of the coping mechanisms that um, sexual abuse victims use to kind of survive. Um, and one of them is quite a controversial one, that of multiple personalities. Uh, what is your, your take on that diagnosis? Do you believe that it's, it's real? And is the skepticism toward that diagnosis part of the false memory movement? Is it part of that attempt to, um, you know, undermine the testimony of, of women? Yeah, it's, it's a really complex uh, question, I think. Um, people who have survived early trauma, severe trauma, uh, particularly chronic abuse as they grow to adulthood, when they present in a mental health setting, they often have a very florid presentation. So the way in which they're presenting, they have much higher rates of, um, you know, psychotic symptoms, much higher rates um, of dissociative symptoms. Um, they may be presenting in ways that are really challenging for a mental health practitioner to, to, make, to make sense of. Dissociative identity disorder, which is um, which is the way in which we, we now term um, multiple personality disorder, um, has been the subject of ongoing controversy um, really over the last 30 years, specifically because it is a common diagnosis for people who are recounting early and extreme trauma. So we can't make a distinction between the scepticism with which their stories and their testimony have been met and the scepticism that the diagnosis has attracted. Now, ironically, because of this scepticism, dissociative identity disorder, or DID, is one of the most well-substantiated psychiatric diagnoses in the DSM. Uh, you know, we've got a range of, of different studies, including, you know, um, MRI scans, brain scans, uh, you know, uh, a range of, of different studies that clearly shows that uh, there are significant differences in brain function uh, and neurological function amongst adults who have survived serious and, and organized abuse. There's also been a lot of work done to show uh, in research uh, that uh, adults with DID diagnoses, that their histories of organized abuse can be substantiated. Uh, and it's not uncommon that they have witnessed murder, for example, and that that murder was investigated by the police and someone went to prison. You know, that's that's quite common in the histories of people with, with DID. And the, the, the stereotype or the straw man of the, the woman with DID who's recounting this terrible history and there's no documentation of it, that's simply false. Uh, when we look at, at, at psycho psychiatric clinical case reviews, uh, uh, adults who have diagnoses of DID very often have very well documented um, uh, histories of, um, of abuse. So DID uh, is a psychiatric um, diagnosis that we can take seriously and we need to take seriously because uh, adults with a diagnosis of DID have really high physical and mental health needs, really high rates of psychosocial difficulty. There's no question that they have extremely difficult lives. And, and I think, unfortunately, the controversy over their diagnosis has overshadowed the fact that they're often too disabled to work, too disabled to carry on caring for their families sometimes, um, too disabled to, to enter into safe, productive relationships with other people. Um, and it's really sad that this sort of false and, and, and I think exaggerated scepticism around the disorder overshadows their day-to-day -day needs. Mm. The, um, 
you have a chapter called Living in Two Worlds, which is one of the more horrifying ones, I find, because it talks about um, sexual abuse, organized sexual abuse within the family. And the thing that really struck me is how most of these families seem very normal, mm. right? I mean, this is it's this facade of, of being um, having a daytime life and a nighttime life. Mm. Uh, can you talk about how family organized abuses maybe differs from other types of of organized abuse? So it's become clear in uh, sexual abuse research that we have a very small group of families. Uh, in which physical and sexual abuse is normal in the context of the family. So there's physical and sexual violence um, intergenerationally um, between adults and children and, and often between multiple levels of, of the generations in the family. But then sexual and, and physical violence is then, is then normal across the family, so normal between siblings, for, for example. And these, these families tend to take two forms is either an extremely sort of disorganized, dysfunctional family. And this goes back to, to what you described earlier about disorganized abuse, where the family is just openly dysfunctional and, and violent and abusive. And these are the families that are much more likely to come to the attention um, of the authorities. We've had really horrific um, cases of this here in Australia recently uh, in which a, a family was, was discovered uh, living in a rural property um, with multiple generations of, of, incest, uh, of incest going back, um, not just to the grandparents, but to the great-grandparents. And the family just lived um, in this openly dysfunctional kind of fashion, and, and the, the children have now been removed from that family. It's an extremely, uh, very, very upsetting case. But because of the open dysfunction of the family, they're more likely to be, um, to, to, to be identified. We then have these much more authoritarian, patriarchal families that is organised around the disavowal of the abuse. So um, although uh, abuse and violence is happening routinely, um, normatively within the family, the structure of the family is organised to deny that the abuse is taking place, to disavow it and to cover it up. And so this was a real focus for me because a number of my research participants actually came from middle-class backgrounds. They came from upper-middle-class backgrounds. Their, their fathers were employed in quite well-paying jobs. Their mother was normally at home um, looking after the kids, as it were. Um, the father controlled the income. He controlled the access of the family to health care. He controlled um, the communication that the family had. Um, to anybody outside of the family. Um, and there was a tremendous amount of fear in the family about what would happen if you ever spoke out, um, not just because the father would would be violent or the father was frightening, but also that the father was connected to a set of other men who also had the capacity to abuse um, and, and to be physically violent to, to the members of the family. So this particular chapter is called Living in Two Worlds because um, that's how participants described it. A number of participants who didn't know one another, they'd never met, they talked about having a day night, a, a day life and a night life. And they said, what, what happened in my family during the day bore no relationship to what happened at, at night. It was completely different. And you didn't speak about what happened at night during the day. Nobody spoke about it. And, and if, they, if they spoke about it um, during the day, their, their family members would look at them as though they were, were crazy, uh, as though, and they would be told, oh, you just had a bad dream, um, you know, you, you just had a nightmare last night, 
um, you're fine, everything's fine. Um, so particularly as children, this was really powerful, and, and this was really powerful. Uh, a number of, of women particularly grew to adulthood believing that they just had bad dreams. And um, one woman who, in, in the research I called Annie, this was incredibly sad because it was only when Annie's child began telling her about what Annie's parents were doing to him, were doing to their grandchild, and she, what he was describing were the things that she thought she had nightmares about as a child because her parents always said to her, you're, you're, you're just dreaming. This is just a dream. And when her own son was saying to her very specific things that she remembered her father doing, it was then that she realized that she wasn't having nightmares, that she'd grown up in a very abusive um, um, family and then had then placed her own child at risk by leaving her child with her parents. So these are very effective strategies that, that families use in order to confuse children, um, in order to control children, and in order to quarantine the abuse in such a way that the child may, for, for many years, not ever get to a point where they're certain enough about what they're experiencing to tell anybody uh, about what they're going through. Most of the time, these uh, perpetrators are men, correct, when it comes to sexual abuse? Yeah, organized abuse is a really challenging one because it's, uh, it's one of the main uh, domains or arenas in which we do see um, female offenders, we see female um, perpetrators of sexual abuse. And, uh, you know, the studies done in the U.S., uh, where, uh, in, in, in the United States, where there is, uh, the FBI does actually have a database of, um, of sexual abuse incidents and, and offenders. Um, organized abuse um, is about 50% uh, of, of the cases um, of female perpetrated sexual abuse. So it was really important in this study to look at the dynamics of organized abuse because it became quite clear from um, what participants were saying, and this is consonant with the research on female perpetrators uh, of sexual abuse in treatment, that although women do participate in organized abuse and may take an active role in sexual abusing children, um, we need to, to look at the gender dynamics of the perpetrator group uh, and recognize that very often this woman is not um, acting, um, as it were, freely, um, that there are, uh, you know, she lives under the threat of violence. She's often also experiencing abuse alongside the, 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 the children. So I tried to walk, um, yeah, I, I tried to walk a fine line in the book between recognising that certainly women do engage in sexual abuse in the context of organised abuse, but also looking at um, uh, often the, the, the limitations placed uh, around them uh, and their own lack of options and, and alternatives um, to leave the abuse or to protect their children. You actually say that a lot of the time organized sexual abuse is uh, a collective masculine performance. What do you mean by that? Multi-perpetrator sexual offences uh, are driven uh, almost, I mean, they're driven wholly by by men and and a particular male dynamic. That's true of, of gang rape. Uh, it is extremely rare, almost to, to the point where we've just never had uh, a, a case of of gang rape um, that has been um, female perpetrated and 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 female driven. And so it's unsurprising that that's also a dynamic that's reflected in in the context of of organised abuse. 
And I was interested in, in this study in looking at the way in which the particular gender dynamics of perpetrator groups uh, involve um, men performing a particular kind of masculinity, men using the bodies of, of children and women um, as objects through which they create um, particular masculine identities and they perform those identities often um, in, um, in, you know, uh, in, in an audience uh, of men. Um, or we see women and children's bodies being used um, as objects of exchange, so men exchanging children with one another um, in order to perpetuate um, their bonds with one another, to establish status, prestige, um, sometimes for, for money, for payment. Um, but it's clear that profit is not a real motivator in organised abuse, and that's true even when we look at internet-perpetrated organised abuse. It's pretty rare that anybody's really making any money from this. What they're, what they're doing is connecting with like-minded men, developing relationships with like-minded men, using the bodies of women and children, and from that, understanding themselves as a man in a particular kind of, of way. Um, and in organised abuse, this construction of masculinity becomes very aggressive, very sadistic, um, really very, very dangerous kinds of masculinity being performed and, and perpetrated um, through sexual abuse. What 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 do you hope that people will take away from your book? Reading it, like what what is your hope for for the future? I suppose it has the the book operates for me on on a couple of registers. Um, there are a group of mental health practitioners um, who are already working with survivors of organised abuse. Um, we have got um, some I think really useful um, you know guides for treatment for organised abuse survivors, for survivors of, of extreme abuse. I think we've, we've done some good work over the last 15 or 20 years to put in place a mental health treatment that's really supportive and really effective, and that's fantastic. What we don't have um, is the kind of sociological and criminological backdrop to that that makes sense of what organised abuse survivors have, have been through. Uh, mental health practitioners are dealing with survivors one-on-one, -on -one, uh, and certainly in my experience is that um, mental health practitioners are often trying to develop an explanation for organised abuse and my hope is that we can use in this book sociological theory, criminological theory to start to paint uh, a broader picture and then this connects organised abuse with other efforts around sexual abuse around domestic violence, around sexual assault you know organised abuse is on a continuum of sexual violence, this is how Liz Kelly in, in the UK describes it, a continuum of sexual violence. It's at the far end, but it's not off there in space on a peninsula, on an island, you know, um, separate or distinct from other sexual offences. So organised abuse tells us something about our, about our society. Um, the fact that some children and some women are vulnerable to extreme abuse and extreme trauma over a long period of time, the fact that those women and children can repeatedly notify the authorities, can repeatedly notify the police, and yet not get support, not get assistance, uh, it became really clear in my research that that's something that perpetrator groups take for granted. Uh, they expect 
um, the helplessness of the women and the children that, that they victimise. And it's only until, um, you know, social services, welfare services, law enforcement, the criminal justice system makes the adjustments that they need to make in order to acknowledge that we have people who have survived extreme long-term trauma. It's only once they make those adjustments that we won't have organised abuse anymore. Uh, and so my, my hope is that the book um, is a resource for practitioners, but I hope it's also a resource for those sociologists, those criminologists, those policymakers who are thinking long term about how we can realign um, our policy settings, how we can realign um, our um, provision of, of services uh, in order to uh, address the, the burden of violence uh, on us as a community. Um, because it's really clear that survivors of organised abuse are actually a very, very expensive population for us as a community. Um, they're making repeat contacts with police, with health services, alcohol and drug services, social services. We see a tremendous overrepresentation of organised abuse survivors on the streets. So they're falling so far through the cracks. They're on the streets. Um, they're in prison. Um, we have too many organised abuse survivors in prison. Uh, we have too many organised abuse survivors in, um, you know, in the acute psychiatric system because they're just not getting the support that they need. So we we can't afford this. We can't afford to ignore um, the burden of, of abuse and, uh, and, and violence. It's a financial burden, but it's a tremendous human cost. Uh, and I think that the, the book seeks to really make that concrete and really drive that home. If people want more information about uh, the book, the research that you did, and, and sexual abuse in, in general, uh, where where can they they find it? Is your book readily available? Is it out now in print or on Amazon? So you can order uh, the book, uh, yeah, through through Amazon. You'll find it in, in a range of um, of uh, online um, booksellers. It's actually just been released in paperback, which is great um, because it makes it quite quite affordable. Um, so the book's been released this month in, in paperback. Uh, and, and I certainly hope that'll make it affordable um, for practitioners, for um, policymakers, but also for survivors of organised abuse and sexual abuse who feel that they're ready to start to read um, more broadly about what they've been through. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your book. Thanks, Annie. I really appreciate it. Been listening to an interview with Michael Salter, author of Organized Sexual Abuse. This is your host, Annie Sapukaya. Thank you for listening to New Books in Sociology.